Good morning, everyone. Please take out your Bible and turn to the fourth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 4. That's on page 809 of the Pew Bible. And today we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read, so please follow along in your copy of God's Word. And I ask that you please pay close attention. This is the Word of God today for this congregation gathered together here. In verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Please join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, please come and open up this text to our understanding so that we can see Christ in it and know him and his work on our behalf more perfectly. Help me to speak clearly and accurately and please help this congregation to hear and respond rightly. Amen. Jesus Christ was baptized by John in the River Jordan. He had joined the crowds that were responding to John's message of repentance from sin and preparation for the coming of the Savior. John preached that men must turn from their sins and look in faith to the one who was to come the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus came down to be baptized by John, John was understandably reluctant to baptize Jesus, who he recognized to be greater and more worthy than himself. In fact, John described himself as not even worthy to loosen the laces of Jesus' sandals and said to Christ that he, John, needed to be baptized by Christ and not the other way around. But Jesus was determined that he would identify himself with those who were responding to God's message, John's message, and he therefore underwent the ceremony of baptism. The Gospel writer tells us that when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. Then an audible voice originating from heaven attested to the complacency, that is, the pleasure of God in his Son, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. All the persons of the Trinity participated in this signal event, marking the beginning of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed had come to be the divine Savior, the Lamb bearing away the sins of the world. Perhaps surprisingly, after experiencing this publicity of divine acclamation and recognition, Jesus did not immediately launch into his public ministry. Rather, we see that under the leading of the Holy Spirit, he then went out into the wilderness to experience a season of temptation from the devil. That is, God the Holy Spirit guided the God-man Jesus Christ into the wilderness for the express purpose that he should experience 
the various temptations and snares that the enemy of God would use to assail him. Now this seems peculiar to us. We know that it's necessary that we personally seek to avoid temptation whenever we are able to. In fact, Jesus himself, one chapter later, or two chapters, when teaching his disciples how to pray, taught them to ask God to lead them away from temptation and to deliver them from it. In the case of Jesus, however, rather than shelter him from temptation, the Holy Spirit not only led him to it, but directed Jesus over a period of 40 days to undergo extended temptation, as we read in Luke's Gospel, the fourth chapter, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. The grammar makes clear that the Spirit was directing and Christ was experiencing during the entire time of 40 days a lengthy and very difficult course of temptations. So in your bulletin you have the outline, and so this is outline point, Roman numeral A. Who planned this event? The Holy Spirit planned this event. This unexpected event in the life of the Lord Jesus immediately raises many significant questions in our minds as we study the Gospel narratives. If Jesus were to be the Savior of the world, he must necessarily be a sinless Savior. Why then would God himself place his Son in the path of sin, exposing him to danger, ruin, and the failure of his mission? Why would God lead Jesus to act in a way directly contrary to what is expressed as the will of Jesus for his disciples in the model prayer that he taught them? And frankly, what is contrary to common sense and all rules of prudence? Were not the heavy demands of the public ministry that would soon be placed upon Jesus sufficient for him to bear? Weren't there people that needed to be healed? Wasn't it necessary the dead should be raised, the blind made to see, the lame to walk, and that the poor should have good news preached to them, as the prophet Isaiah had foretold? In fact, weren't there disciples to be chosen, trained, corrected, and matured so that they could lead the fledgling church when Christ would complete his earthly mission? As we might say in common parlance today, didn't Jesus have enough on his plate? Under the pressure of all these upcoming responsibilities, and especially in light of his looming passion and death on the cross, why was it that Jesus could afford to spend over one month of his ministry time being tempted and tested? Nay, even more so, why was he under necessity to spend this time by himself in the wilderness in a way so seemingly unproductive and unnecessary? Our goal in this sermon is to examine and attempt to answer these questions in the broader context of what it was Jesus came to accomplish as Savior and Redeemer. If our understanding of the purpose and mission of Christ's earthly life and his accomplishments does not attain to what the Bible reveals them to be, we will have difficulties with this episode, and we will respond with answers to these questions that are less than what Jesus deserves in reward for what he has done. So let's start by looking closely at the Gospel text in order to understand historically in proper context exactly where, how, and what happened during this temptation of Christ. The three writers of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record some facts about this important episode in Christ's life. The accounts in Matthew and Luke are very similar. Mark's Gospel, on the other hand, gives only a brief summary of the temptation of Jesus. In the first chapter, verse 12, Mark wrote, The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Although Mark's account is very short, he does provide the most salient points of this episode of Christ's life. He records that it was the Spirit of God, the personal divine Holy Spirit, who led out or even compelled the God-man into the place of temptation. 
The verb translated to drive out here literally means to cast out and carries the idea of decisiveness and even forcefulness. It was necessary and urgent that Jesus undergo this time of testing in the wilderness. We see the same sense of urgency and action in Mark's use of the word immediately, which he often employed in his gospel in recognition of the importance of Christ's mission. It was crucial that Christ go to the desert to endure these temptations and testing prior to his public ministry. Jesus was, of course, always obedient to the will of God, his Father. Here, the compelling is not an indication of unwillingness on Jesus' part, but rather of the importance that the Spirit of God placed on the upcoming testing. Next, we read that the place selected for Jesus' confrontation with the temptations of the devil was the wilderness. The word rendered as wilderness here means variously lonesome, waste, desert, or solitary. It is used in the New Testament, for example, of the desert of Judea to the southeast of Jerusalem in the direction of the Dead Sea, where the rain decreases and the heat increases as the land's elevation falls to its lowest level on earth, 1,388 feet below sea level. During the four summer months, the average daily high temperature touches 100 degrees Fahrenheit. I wonder if we'll get there today. This was the location wherein John the Baptist was preaching, and it traditionally held to be the place of the tempting of Jesus. And this is the area that's been highlighted on the map you have in your bulletin. Regardless of the exact physical location or locations in which these temptations took place, we can be certain of at least the following characteristics of this location. First, we can know that the wilderness was a physically difficult environment for Jesus to be in. The Spirit directed Jesus to a place where the only resources he would have were those he could provide with his own abilities and those that God would graciously provide for him. The physical dangers Jesus faced in the wilderness were very real. He did not have access to the latest outdoor gear from Eastern Mountain Supply. Sufficient drinking water may have been problematic in the Judean desert. Extremes of heat during the day were but perhaps also surprising exposure to cold temperatures at night. Furthermore, there was danger from wild animals, scorpions, and poisonous snakes. In biblical times, there were still large carnivores present in the region that is today's Palestine, as in Mark's Gospel. This is outline 2B1. Jesus' uh, situation was dangerous. In this wilderness experience, Jesus was physically isolated and cut off from help from the outside world. Not only did this isolation increase the physical difficulty and danger of the time Jesus was spending there, but as we shall see, he was engaged in a task and a spiritual battle that was uniquely his own and that he must undertake without any outside assistance. Point 2b2, Jesus was isolated. Furthermore, we see that Jesus intensified the difficulty of the task ahead of him by embarking on a 40-day period of fasting, during which the scripture says he ate nothing. Some interpreters maintain that 40 days should be considered as a kind of round number standing for a lengthy period of time, several weeks in duration. The Old Testament records 40-day fast undergone by Moses and Elijah. It is said by those who have practiced this sort of self-discipline that the extreme hunger pains tend to fade away after the first day or two, and that the difficulty of abstaining from eating thereafter is not as great until the fast becomes quite lengthy. At first, the body will tend to lose about a pound a day, but the rate of weight loss will drop later will drop later as fat reserves are used up and the body begins to metabolize the muscular tissue. Of course, we know that fasting is used for many spiritual purposes in scripture. It represents a way to draw near to God and to separate oneself from the distractions of the surrounding world. It can be a useful exercise in self-denial 
by weaning oneself from the tyranny of the demands of the physical body. We may assume that Jesus had some of these purposes in mind when he undertook this arduous fast for 40 days in the wilderness. Your next outline point is that Jesus was fasting. The difficulties Jesus faced during this time had not only to do with his physical surroundings and his self-imposed suffering of fasting. The greatest difficulty in suffering related to the fact that he was to be subjected to the unrestrained and open attack of the devil, who was free to tempt him any way he saw fit. Let's be careful to not underestimate the plan, scope, and range of the devil's temptations during this time. The temptations were various and several, of a great and long duration. Jesus endured 40 days of testing, and the temptations were ongoing during this time. They did not occur only at the end. The temptations must have been focused and intense. The very purpose for which Jesus was there was in order to be tested. The temptations did not come as a byproduct or as an accident during a pleasant holiday that Jesus was undertaking. He was there to be tried with the very best ammunition the devil had in his arsenal. Outline point 24b, he was being tempted. One can imagine that as the days passed, as Jesus' hunger and physical weakness increased, and as he came nearer and nearer to the point of death by starvation, that Satan, like any strategic-minded opponent, pressed his attack with the strongest offensive weapons when he saw his enemy was becoming weakest. The evangelists record three specific temptations that occurred principally at the end of Jesus' period of fasting. We can think of this scene as the climax of the struggle, where the victory would be decided, and one of the competitors would likely be left defeated on that field of battle. At the end of those days of fasting, Jesus was intensely hungry. The enemy came to try to take advantage of the situation and spoke the following temptation to Jesus. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. The original language used shows that the devil conceded Christ's divine sonship to be true. The devil was not saying, if you are the Son of God, and you may or may not be, but rather, if you are the Son of God, and I know that you are, command these stones to become bread. Satan echoed the affirmation that came from heaven at the baptism as part of his bait. Outline point 2C, the first temptation was to make stones into bread. There can be some ambiguity as to exactly how sin enters into this temptation of the devil. It would appear from the gospel accounts that the period of fasting had been completed at this time. Most likely, the temptation was to lure Jesus to use the divine powers that rightly belong to the second person of the Trinity in a way not in accord with the will of God the Father during Jesus' sojourn here on earth. Or perhaps the time had not quite arrived to eat. After the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity still possessed all his divine powers and attributes, but he limited exercise of them in accordance with the explicit will of God the Father. In this sense, he emptied himself and submitted to the humiliation of participating in the difficult struggles of the children of men. It may not have been the will of the Father that the Son should create loaves for himself, similar to the way, the miraculous way, he would do when feeding large crowds later in his ministry. Jesus' miracles were not self-serving. Further, we have just seen at his baptism God's attestation of pleasure and perfect delight in his Son. To respond, it was fitting that the Son exercise total trust in the providential care of his father to meet his need for food following the period of fasting. After the time of temptations, angels were ministering to him. Perhaps it had been agreed between the divine persons that the angels would provide the food necessary to resuscitate Jesus following this extensive period of fasting, just as ravens had supernaturally brought food to Elijah in the time of famine. If that were the case, 
Then the temptation would be for the God-man to use the powers of his divine nature in a way not in strict accordance with the program of his Heavenly Father. But even in this hour of greatest need, Jesus refused to sin in this way. Rather, in a stunning display of God-oriented priority and loving God with all, and indeed the last of his strength, he declared that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Certainly Jesus did need the bread and would soon die without it, but he was willing to risk rather than to step outside obedience to the perfect will of God in everything, thereby proving that the text he quoted was indeed the operative principle of his life. So the devil changed his strategy and took Jesus to Jerusalem, the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your feet, your foot against the stone. Verses 5 and 6. The second temptation was to jump off the temple. Having been defeated by Jesus' use of scripture in the prior temptation, the tempter decided to answer in kind. You know the old saying, the devil can quote scripture for his own purposes. Well, here you see the genesis of that maxim. But there's only one slight problem. The quotation from Psalm 91 refers to the protection and care that God will accord to the person who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, trusting in God as his refuge and fortress. The promises are not carte blanche, giving license to anyone act in self-serving, imprudent ways. Rather, they direct themselves to those who live and walk in a manner worthy of the high vocation of the child of God. Under the same type of principle, Scripture promises us that God will hear our prayers and answer them when we pray according to his will, not when we ask amiss for our own lusts or selfish pleasures. This temptation appealed to the common human weakness for notoriety, glory, and the approval of others, rather than trusting one's status to the always just providence of God. The temple represented the center of Jewish religious and cultic life, buzzing with ceremonial activity and filled with the cream of Israelite piety. A flamboyant display demonstrating the unique status and God approval of Jesus could set the stage for him to sweep into national life and into the popular conception as a new and charismatic religious leader, guiding the Jews to spiritual renewal and perhaps eventually casting off the detested and defiling yoke of the Roman occupation. Fortunately, Jesus' motivational set and heart direction were completely contrary to that of the fallen and worldly-minded. He easily saw through the devil's misuse of the word of God and corrected him by rightly citing the duty of the obedient child of God to not put the Lord God to the test, unlike the historical example of the disobedient Israelites in the wilderness so many years before. By the way, seeing this misappropriation of the scripture by the devil we ought not to be surprised when so many today also misuse the word of God. Even those who are the genuine children of God by faith must be very careful in the way we make use of scripture. When we seek to apply God's word to a particular situation, we must always adhere to the intent of the author using sound principles of interpretation and act out of a clean conscience and a pure heart. For the final temptation in Matthew's account, the devil played his trump card. He took Jesus to the high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. Luke adds that this was done in a brief moment of time. Whether this vision was purely physical or whether a supernatural element enabled the devil to make a panoramic display of the wealth and glory of all the great kingdoms throughout history, we cannot fully know for certain. I tend to think in those later terms. He said to Jesus, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Luke adds the devil's claim that all this authority and all their glory had been delivered to him 
and he could give them to whomever he would. Here the devil was rolling high, putting the Lord to the test of his own teachings, as Jesus would proclaim later in his ministry, when he experienced the folly of a man selling away his soul to gain the whole world. We all know that many of the temptations we face in life and the false gods worshipped by so many revolve around misuse of power and money. If Jesus would strike a deal with the devil, he could have all of this. In your outline, at what price? Worship. While the reader of an English translation cannot access this nuance, in this sequence, the devil used a different form of the conditional statement, revealing his uncertainty as to what Jesus might do with his offer. Would Jesus give in to this temptation, or would he cling to the naked duty, pleasure, and satisfaction of worshiping the true God alone? It appears the devil did not know the outcome. Blessed Savior, true of heart, answered, Be gone, Satan. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The divine Son of God exercised full authority over Satan and his agents, an authority they were always compelled to acknowledge and to which they must submit during his time on earth. In obedience to this authority, the devil left him until a more opportune time for temptation should come, and angels came and were ministering to him. Likely they brought him the food and drink, and possibly the medical attention he would need to recover from this debilitating near-death experience. So, having carefully examined the events and details of this testing time of Jesus, I now want to step back to a more abstract level and seek to answer this question. What is the significance of this event in the life of Christ as it relates to his mission to provide redemption for the elect of God. It must be true that the gospel writers considered the testing to be more than a private event in the life of Jesus, to be passed over silently, as were most details of the first 30 years of his earthly life. So we can conclude the evangelists regarded Christ's triumph over these temptations and his spiritual enemy as public events that hold great importance for us today. Well, like virtually everything in the Bible, many interpretations have been put forward to explain and try to understand the true significance of these historical events. I want to summarize three different interpretations in order of increasing penetration and insight into the life and role of Jesus. Think of good, better, and best. In fact, I will claim that all three of these explanations contain truth and are valuable to us today. However, the first two explanations, while true and helpful and necessary for understanding, are not sufficient to extend to the total depth of what Christ accomplished. The first explanation for the temptation of Jesus, and the one most commonly offered in commentary and preaching, identifies the actions of Jesus as an example for the lives of Christians. In this way of thinking, Jesus' encounter with temptations and his methods and means for overcoming them serve as the pattern for Christian believers through the ages when they face the same structures, struggles, and spiritual attack. In our outline, Jesus provided an example. After all, is it not true that our Jesus is our example for all things? The writer to the Hebrews exhorted his audience, and by implication, us, over and over again to look unto Jesus, to consider Jesus, to think about Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And in fact, we can see a reasonable analogy between these temptations of Jesus and the general categories of sin that we all faced, as described in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions. Meeting these desires, many of which are not evil in and of themselves, but in ways at variance with the will of God, form the fountainhead in our deceitful heart from which so many of our sins flow. So this use and application of the victory of Jesus over temptation is absolutely true and quite valuable. What would Jesus do is a question that's rightly asked today. Here, when encountering temptations of the most severe, an intense kind, we see exactly what Jesus did. 
He fled to the written word of God, wielding it in the spiritual battle facing him. He knew that infallible guidance and right principles of life are found in the scripture. When temptation came, Jesus found his victory in the inexhaustible treasury of God's word. For Jesus, finding the guidance written in the word of God was sufficient to settle the matter once for all. So today, when we face temptation, we can and ought to follow this example of Christ. How many scandalous sins and failures, how much suffering and pain, how much reproach to our Christian witness in the name of Christ could be avoided if we simply followed the example Jesus left for us here. From the newborn believer to the grizzled elderly saint, following in the steps of Christ can lead us to spiritual victory by overcoming temptation. Is this interpretation of the temptation of Christ as an example for the saints to follow valid for us today? Of course, but it's not our focus. A second explanation for our text today considers the role of Jesus as the divine sin bearer and savior. All persons who view the work of Christ on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for sin would approve of this interpretation. If Jesus were to qualify as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, if he were to be laden with all the sins of all redeemed people of all time, he must answer to the pattern of the sacrificial lamb without spot or blemish. That is, to carry our sins to the cross and bear their punishment, it must be true that Jesus carried no burden of personal sin chargeable to his own account, no impediment to his sacrificial acceptance. Under the economy of Moses, the high priest entered only once per year into the holiest place of the temple to offer sacrifice, first for his own sins, then for all the sins of the people of Israel. Jesus, our perfect and final high priest, having no personal sin, was very superior to those typical high priests. He needed to offer no sacrifice for his own sins. Furthermore, he offered his own efficacious blood rather than the powerless blood of goats and bulls, which could never take away sins. So under this view, the gospel writers are giving us a glimpse into the eternal purity of the sinless Savior, showing us that he was fully qualified to bear and atone for our sins by his sacrifice on the cross. In other words, evidence that Jesus was a sinless Savior. Is this interpretation of the temptation of Christ valid for us today? Of course. It should increase our love, admiration, and joy in Christ and help us to glory in the cross and in our free and complete salvation. But it's not our focus. So these two interpretations, the first that Jesus set an example of conquering sin and temptation, the second that Jesus is displayed as sin and savior are good and valuable. But I proceed to introduce a third interpretation. And to do this, I'm going to need a new word in another text. The new word is surety, S-U-R-E-T-Y. This is not a word frequently used in conversational English today. The basic meaning is a person who undertakes to do or accomplish a task in place of another person. Sometimes the word is used in a financial sense as a guarantor of a loan who offers security of payment. Often the responsibility of the surety only comes into effect upon the failure of the first party perform a contracted duty. Perhaps some of you have co-signed your child's college loan. If you did so, you are now legal surety to pay the loan in the event of default by your children. You may soon come to regret your decision to take on this binding responsibility. Now, what does the role of surety have to do with Jesus? In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22, the author states that the priesthood of Jesus which will continue forever, makes Jesus the surety or the guarantor of a better covenant. So let me now state clearly the takeaway point of this second part and indeed of the entire sermon. Under the new covenant, Jesus acted as our surety to undo the failure of Adam, who plunged the entire human race into sin and condemnation. That is, Jesus performed the perfect righteousness required by God to accept our persons as righteous, and also acted in the sacrificial role of bearing the penalty due to our sins. In your outline, Jesus acted as our surety. 
As surety, Jesus lived a perfect life, and in place of man, he faced and overcame all temptation common to man. Hebrews 4.15 states that he was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. You'll note that in Luke's account of the temptation in chapter 4, verse 13, it says that the devil departed from Jesus when he had ended every temptation. Undoubtedly, as our surety, in this desert experience, Jesus endured temptations in all categories and all types with which we ourselves are beset and under which we sin. Also as surety, Jesus died a sacrificial death, and both life and death took place in our stead, and both were demanded before sinners could be saved without violence being done to God's holiness. By our union with Christ through faith, that which he did is counted as though we had done it. It is as though we lived the flawless life Jesus lived, and we die the penal death that Jesus died. This statement summarizes the role of Jesus as the surety of the new covenant. Now, I want you to see that I'm not just making up these ideas, which may be unfamiliar to some of you. If I can show you that these things are revealed in the word of God, then I think you will accept them. The word surety and the concept of surety may both be simple, but the classic text of scripture that establishes the role of Jesus as surety is rather complicated. So we're just going to extract the most fundamental point that conclusively shows that Jesus did act as our surety. So please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to read again the scripture reading from today, starting in the 12th verse. From Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12, the text from our earlier scripture reading. Verse 12, Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace by that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Actually, this text twice directly states the very thesis I seek to establish. It does so in an extended comparison or analogy between two historic human beings. The first one, Adam, and the second one, Jesus Christ, called the last Adam in order to emphasize this analogy. Paul states that the deeds of Adam affected all his posterity in the most profound way. Likewise, the deeds of Christ affected his posterity in an opposite but much greater way. Outline point C2, 3C2, each one affected their posterity. We see this analogy explicitly stated in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. One trespass, the sin of Adam, led to death and, Oops, death and condemnation for all men. That will teach me to make a gesture. I won't do it again. Here, we encounter the historic, unique Christian doctrine of original sin. The New England Primer of 1687 taught both theology and the letter A to children with the, with the delightful rhyme, in Adam's fall, we sin all. You know, if you teach children Dr. Seuss, you will get Dr. Seuss foolishness. 
if you teach the Holy Scripture, you might get Puritans. God created, organized, and hierarchically arranged the human race in such a way that all of the posterity of Adam, all of us living today, all who have lived, and all whoever will live are counted as having participated in the sin of Adam and therefore received the guilt and consequences of it. Adam's sin brought condemnation. But in an analogous way, the obedience and consequent reward earned by one man, Jesus Christ, are counted for the obedience of all of his posterity, and the reward is gifted to them. Paul speaks in legal terms here. One trespass, that of Adam, caused legal judgment and condemnation for the entire human race. Fortunately and gloriously reversing this ruin, one righteousness, that of Jesus Christ, resulted in justification, righteousness, and life for all men who are in him. Christ's righteousness brought justification. These facts are so stunning that Paul felt the need to repeat them. In verse 19 he stated, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The legal judgment on the descendants of Adam results in condemnation as a result of Adam's one sin. Men are already sentenced at the bar of God and will bear the full punishment due to this sin. But the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, will likewise be recognized legally as the righteousness of the many who are joined to him through faith. Again, we see a legal judgment declared not guilty or justified as the verdict pronounced by God of those who are counted righteous with the merits of Christ's obedience. In both cases here, the principle is one for many, one for many. By the act of one man, Adam, the condemnation has come upon many, that is, to any and all represented in union with Adam, or the entire human race. And the righteous act of one man, Jesus Christ, with the verdict of acquittal, comes upon all who are represented by and in union with him. Importantly, in verse 19, the verb translated twice to make in several English versions does not mean to make in the sense of changing the nature of something, as in the baker makes the oats into bread, but rather carries the connotation of to place into a category or to appoint into a position as in Paul instructed Titus to appoint elders in every place. Hence, the nuance added to Paul's explanation in verse 19 clarifies that the disobedience of Adam placed many into the category sinner, while the obedience of Christ in turn later places many of those same people, now redeemed, into the category of righteous. All are placed into the category sinner or righteous. In both cases, the consequences of the actions of one person affect and indeed control the destiny of untold millions of persons. Please note that the analogy reveals that consequences experienced by individuals who federally participate in the actions of the representative men Adam and Jesus are not a result merely of their own individual actions. That is, the condemnation of the children of Adam comes formally as a result of Adam's one act of sin and then additionally, but not exclusively, as a result of their multiple individual acts of sin, Adam having acted as a public person for them all. The righteousness credited to the children of Christ in the same way formally comes not as a result of their individual acts of righteousness, but as a result of the perfect righteousness of Christ in which they participated with Christ as public person acting for them all. This is nothing less than the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, when examined from the point of view of the saved and justified sinner. Alternatively, viewed from the vantage point of what Christ has accomplished as the central figure in all of history, we see the doctrine of the role of Christ as surety, he acting on behalf of and in place of his people. Well, these are life-transforming doctrines, aren't they? But this is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a life-transforming message that all of those represented by Christ and joined to him by faith are counted righteous because of the once-for-all-time righteousness of the life and death of the divine Savior. This is the best and most amazing news possible. Exactly the sin of one man, Adam, brought death, 
judgment, condemnation, and ultimately hell on the entire human race. Their later individual sins only added to and confirmed the judgment of this original sin. But, springing from unspeakable grace and mercy, the perfect righteousness wrought by Christ has brought life, acceptance, glory, and eternal joy to those who receive the gift of righteousness and the abundance of grace through that one man, Jesus Christ. When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, the gospel writers pulled back the veil and gave us an open window into exactly how Jesus was working out the one righteousness that would appoint many sinners into the category of righteous. Viewed in this way, we can see that Jesus was acting on our behalf in the wilderness. Each of us has failed the test of temptation. Adam, the first man, failed the temptation while in earthly paradise, where he had every advantage needed to overcome sin, yet he fell. Jesus, the last Adam, even in the supreme ordeal in the wilderness, as in all venues of his life, overcame temptation and Satan and accomplished a perfect righteousness that could be credited to us. What Jesus did in his life, we did in the legal accounts if we are joined to him through faith. What Jesus suffered on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, both original and ongoing, we suffered in the legal accounts, being joined to him by faith. Jesus, the surety of the new covenant, has both lived and died and overcome on our behalf and for our salvation. Quoting Paul again from Romans chapter 5, and leaving out the intermediate parenthesis of thought, we see the logic. In verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin, skipping out of verse 18, so then, as through one transgression that resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. So men stand or fall before God based on the relation they have to the great surety of the new covenant. All those united to him will be credited with all the merit of the perfect righteousness he lived and with their sins fully atoned for by his vicarious death. All those who seek a different basis of acceptance with God, who is perfectly pure and ineffably holy, will be judged on the basis of their own flawed righteousness and their many sins. They will have no surety acting on their behalf since they have rejected him. Their own merits or demerits will be judged against God's inflexible and unbending standards. This is a fatal choice both for life and eternity. So in summary, I want to close with two applications. First, for those who are united to Christ by faith, those who are believers here and listening, you stand accepted or approved before God, not based on your own works of righteousness. This formal standing does not dispense with the absolute requirement to pursue holiness of life and to seek the mortification of your sin in all of its forms and complexities. It does, however, completely change the motivation for and the basis from which the lifelong process of sanctification follows. You seek to grow in grace and holiness because you are joined to Christ by faith, not in order to gain him. Faith, not works, unites you to Christ. Union with Christ and growth and discipleship frees you from the bondage to sin and enables you to joyfully change your valuation of what in life to pursue, counting Christ as the pearl of great price in comparison with whom all other objects and desires possess no lasting value. Furthermore, beloved, recognize what comfort this truth brings to you in the dark times of your soul. You find yourself guilty of sin. You cannot understand your own failures and lack of progress and sanctification. What do you do at such times? Where do you turn? Well, you turn right here. You gaze on your unchanging surety. When you read the Gospels, you can read them as a beneficiary of the work of Christ, who acted in your stead. Watch him work out the righteousness that alone forms the ground of your acceptance with God. It becomes in no way marred due to your own unrighteousness. Likewise, your best performances add nothing to it. What a tonic for a sin-wearied soul and conscious looking for a solid place to rest. My second application pertains to the unbelievers here who do not have Christ as surety and are not joined to him by saving faith. You must answer the question, 
what will be the basis of your righteousness before God? One day soon you will stand before him and your sins will cry out for justice. Will your own flawed righteousness of law serve you on that day and make you accepted? Will some blend of your own righteousness and that of Christ work for you at that time? How could any standard lower than that of perfect righteousness obtain God's approval? It must match point for point with his own. So flee to Christ, flee to the cross, flee to this great surety where you will find righteousness, peace, and joy in the certain hope of eternal life. And please, flee immediately. God may require your soul of you this very night. If so, you will find yourself in hell before the sun rises tomorrow with no hope of escape or salvation. Remember that at the end of the temptations in the wilderness, the devil left off tempting Jesus until a more opportune time should arise. The final temptation he was able to lay before the Savior resounds with the clear echo of these prior temptations, although spoken through intermediaries. As Jesus hung on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God against sinners, the passers-by mocked him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Luke 23, 35. Righteous to the end, in spite of the unspeakable agony of crucifixion, Jesus acted steadfastly, exactly as he had in the wilderness years before. Because he was the Son of God, for that very reason, he drank to the dregs the cup of the foaming wine of the wrath of God against sin, so that he could act as surety of the new covenant, both in working perfect righteousness for justification and in satisfying all the legal judgment against sin required by the holiness of God. You who are unsaved, will you bow before such an unbounded display of grace and mercy? Or will you continue to spurn offers of gospel salvation? May God grant faith to you for your everlasting happiness and to display the glory of his grace in the age to come. Would you close with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, my words are done and, and they will be quickly forgotten but I have tried my best to explain your words and Christ's role as surety and the need we all have for him, believer or unbeliever. Please bless your word to the accomplishment of his purposes. For your glory we pray. Amen.